from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Prescribing Science, the podcast that... I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Wolbachia, Master Manipulators. <laughs> hey, Chad. I really like what you did with the lead in there. That was that was great. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. And uh, do you like my new microphone? You sound crystal clear today. Yeah, beats the uh, tin cans and uh, twine <laughs> setup we had previously. So yeah, my voice may sound different to listeners. So, so Chad, yes. it is summertime. Mosquitoes are here. They're uh, everywhere. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about the same thing. And it's interesting to contemplate different kinds of mosquito control efforts. And there's a very interesting effort that I learned about a few years ago. And as I was thinking about this mosquito that was pulling a blood meal from my forearm, my mind sort of wandered to, I wonder what the status of some of these mosquito control efforts are at this Mm. point. And so that kind of led me down this whole rabbit hole Mm -hmm. into the realm of this bacteria called Wolbachia and into how parasitism and mutualism are these relationships between organisms that are on this spectrum where different circumstances can result in different kinds of parasitic or mutualistic relationships. And so there's a whole thing, right? And Mm. So anyway, I thought that it might be fun to introduce our listeners to this bacteria called Wolbachia and a little bit about their natural history and and get into how our understanding of them can be applied to some human health and pet health applications. So is it worth, do you want to save the mosquito thing till the end or can you tell us what is happening with that right off the bat? Well, the interesting application to mosquitoes is that it provides basically the opportunity to introduce a pandemic to your local mosquito populations, which effectively keeps mosquito populations in check in your location. And to do so in a way that doesn't require the use of a whole bunch of chemical pesticides sprayed into the environment. Oh, so pandemic, that's never gone wrong before. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But first, it's useful to understand a little bit about what these Wolbachia are and the different kinds of relationships that they have with their hosts before we can start, obviously, to apply that knowledge. And so... So instead of that, what are Wolbachia? Okay. Wolbachia is a genus of bacteria. So these are in the same big, very diverse category of living things that E. coli and other bacteria that you might have heard of are part of. And what's interesting about this group of bacteria that they belong to is that they are specialized intracellular parasites. Intracellular. Okay. So amongst other cells. Yeah. By intra, we mean within. So it's a bacteria that lives within another cell. That's right. So is that sort of what, and I'm already taking us well off the rails here. Is that sort of what like mitochondria do or originally were or something like that? Or That is an excellent point because in fact, Wolbachia is in the same large group of bacteria called the alpha proteobacteria, where we find the ancestors of mitochondria. Hmm. And so you've got it exactly right. They are that type of bacteria that rather than living on a surface or in the tissues of a host organism or in the soil or something like that, they actually live inside the cell of some sort of other living host. And that's where our mitochondria came 
came from hmm. as well. And so there's some other interesting disease causing bacteria in this particular group. The one that people might've heard of before is rickettsia. This is the bacteria that causes epidemic typhus. Hmm. Anyway, so it's an intracellular parasite. And that might sound a little bit weird of like a cell living inside of another cell. It's like, how is there enough room for that to happen? But I think it's worth having a perspective on the different scale in size of these two different kinds of cells. Okay. So the cell that is getting infected would be a eukaryotic cell like you're in my cells, right? We're eukaryotes. Our cells all have a nucleus that contains our genome. And outside of that, there's a big massive space where we have all of our cytosol and all of the little organelles doing all the different little cell functions. And then enclosing all of that is our outer cell membrane, our okay. plasma membrane, right? So that's a eukaryotic cell. Bacteria cells are much, much, much smaller than that. And it might be sort of analogous to if a eukaryotic cell were a double-decker bus, then a bacteria might be in comparison about the size of a person getting onto that bus. Mm, so okay. there's lots of room for lots of them to be inside the cell. Taking pictures and things like taking, that. Yeah. Taking pictures, falling asleep. Uh -huh. you know? And what's cool about how they do this is when they are engulfed by their host cell, they don't just burrow their way through the plasma membrane and then find themselves inside the cytosol. Instead, what happens is when they get to their host cell, the host cell forms a little pouch or pocket. We call it a vesicle around them and brings them in. This is generally speaking, the process of phagocytosis, where in order for a cell to engulf something, it sort of goes up to it and kind of extends a portion of its plasma membrane out and around the thing that it's going to bring in and then boop, closes it all the way around. Right. And now it's on the inside. Hmm. But you can sort of see how that would result in the thing that was being brought in being contained within its own little membranous bag. That sounds less like a an invading parasite type thing than friends like, oh, let me give you <laughs> that feels like the big cell, the eukaryotic cell is giving a hug and bringing in <laughs> right. this invader, right? Right. Yeah. And that's pretty common for parasites to be able to do is to use to their advantage the regular mechanisms that an organism might use to their own advantage. Hmm. And so this very commonly used mechanism by which cells bring things inside of them is basically hijacked and used to gain access to the inside of the cell. Hmm. And so here's what normally happens though. So when the cell engulfs something with its plasma membrane and now it's on the inside and it's in this little, we'll call it a food vacuole, a little tiny membrane bound sac and it's got something in there. And then what normally happens, especially if it's engulfing something it's going to digest or kill, if it's like a white blood cell, these other little tiny features called lysosomes come and attach themselves to that little vacuole and open up and dump their contents into the vacuole. And the contents that get dumped in are usually some sort of digestive enzymes that then kill and break down whatever was engulfed. Mm -hmm. And it's that step that the Wolbachia and other similar kinds of intracellular parasites are able to stop. Hmm. So, so whatever it is that they're doing, 
they prevent that step from happening, the lysosomes coming in and breaking them down. And so, so anyway, that's how Wolbachia and these, these kinds of intracellular parasite bacteria first gain entry into the cell. And then they do what bacteria do, which is start making copies of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you can pretty quickly get from one individual cell being engulfed to a host cell having dozens to hundreds of individual little Wolbachia bacteria in it. So not all bacteria do that way, right? I mean, so we've talked about viruses on the Correct. show uh -huh. and viruses will sort of inject their RNA or DNA uh -huh. into the host cell and then infect them that way uh -huh. and sort of hijack the mechanisms to make that cell do all the reproducing for it. Right. But are there bacteria that would just kind of hang out amongst the cells and try to reproduce and do all the things that it does there or? Yeah. So there are lots of bacteria that are not intracellular parasites. They might be extracellular or even free living bacteria that you might mm. find in the soil or on the surface of your, your desk there or on your microphone, right? <laughs> just making a living off of tiny organic molecules that they find. And so, yeah, this is a, a very specific way of life that okay. these intracellular parasites have. And so what's interesting about this particular genus, these Wolbachia, is that they tend to concentrate or localize in the gonads of their host meaning the testes or the ovaries where the sperm or the eggs are being produced. And not only that, but they tend to, in the ovaries, locate themselves in the precursor cells that are the ones that through division give rise to more and more eggs, the things that will be fertilized by sperm and might go on to produce the next generation. And okay. so what that means is that once a, an individual female becomes infected, all of her descendants are also going to be infected because the eggs that she's producing are infected. Oh. Until, you know, forever and ever, unless something happens to kill off the bacteria. Hmm. So, and so that really is the, very similar to mitochondria then, right? I mean, that we have the mitochondria in our cells and, and it's passed on through the mother and Mm -hmm. um, that's okay. A, it's another, yeah, it's another good similarity there. Maternally inherited is what we say. So they were first discovered about a hundred years ago in insects. And it turns out that the more people looked, the more they were found. Mm. And what current estimates are is that probably more than 65% of all arthropod species so arthropods, including all the insects, the crustaceans, the group that includes the spiders and scorpions, okay. all of those things with an exoskeleton like that, probably better than 65% of all species are hosts to Wolbachia. And so if you just think about the massive diversity of arthropods, it's the most diverse group of animals by far. If mm -hmm. you think about the biomass of arthropods, it's the most biomassive group of animals by far. The fact that the majority of them are hosts to this bacterial infection is pretty astounding. It's, there were a couple of papers that made note of this is probably the most widespread organism on the planet, this Wolbachia, just by the sheer fact of it. Now, is it, does that mean that 
65% of all insects have it or all types of insects have it? 65% of all species. And so perhaps not every single individual. Okay. And so not only are arthropods, but there are these little tiny worms called nematode worms. That's a whole other phylum of living things. Nematodes includes things like parasites, things you might've heard of like roundworms, hookworms, mm-hmm. pinworms, heartworms in dogs and cats. Those are types of nematode roundworms. Mm-hmm. And so some of these can also be infected by Wolbachia. So they're incredibly common. So what happens when, when something is infected by one of these? A couple of really interesting possibilities open up. Some infections turn out to be parasitic in that the host fitness is negatively affected as a result of the infection. And then other kinds of host organisms actually benefit from the infection. So it sort of runs the gamut from being, in some cases, it's parasitic, and in other cases, it's mutualistic. And some of the ways that it can be parasitic are really rather interesting. Hold on. So parasitic means that it's bad for the host. Uh huh. The host will get sick and will have to try to fight it somehow. Right. And mutualistic is that they both benefit in some way. That's right. Okay. And in fact, in some cases, those mutualisms have evolved to the point where they are obligate mutualisms in that neither the host organism nor the bacteria can live without the other. Oh, okay. And so you very astutely brought up the idea of this sounds similar to mitochondria earlier, Mm -hmm. and it's very similar in that way, right? So we obviously can't live without this quote infection of our mitochondria and so much so that for over a billion years now our eukaryotic lineage has persisted in transmitting mitochondria from Mm. one generation to the next and so it's sort of like an incipient example of that where there are these animal species who literally cannot leave descendants anymore unless they have this infection of this wolbachia bacteria Hmm. which is kind of wild. So so anyway, some of the parasitic consequences of these infections are just really interesting. And we talked a little bit earlier about how parasites often manipulate the physiology or behavior of their hosts Mm -hmm. in a way that benefits them, right? And that is true with some of the disease pathologies that result from infection with Wolbachia. And they all kind of center around what happens to the males. So in some cases, Wolbachia just outright killed the males. Okay. So an infected female of an insect or a nematode will be laying infected eggs. And some of those will grow up to be female offspring and others of those will grow up to be male offspring. But in this particular scenario, those eggs that she lays that would otherwise have developed to be males actually die Hmm. before they get the chance to grow up. And so you end up with a... So not just the firstborn son. Right. (laughs) All thousands and thousands of (laughs) of the sons that she might have otherwise produced. And so that's kind of weird, it sounds like at first, but then when you remember that these are maternally inherited from the bacteria's point of view, male host offspring are a dead end. Yeah. Okay. Right? Because those male host offspring, even though their bodies might be infected, they're going to be making sperm, which will not contain the Wolbachia. 
True. And so by favoring the production of daughters instead of the production of sons, the bacteria is favoring the production of the part of the host life cycle that has the potential to transmit the bacteria into the next generation. So that shows simultaneously both more foresight and less foresight than I would have given bacteria credit, right? I mean, that that's giving them more more foresight to be like, well, this male is not going to be able to spread me along, so I'm just going to kill him. And I, I don't normally think that bacteria could think that deeply. Yeah. But if they are thinking that deeply, then they should also recognize that at some mm-hmm. point you do need the males mm-hmm. to continue mm-hmm. the species, really. Right. And so what that suggests is that in this particular case, as long as there are at least a few males around, then the system can persist indefinitely. Mm. And so a few uninfected individuals or maybe some migrants from somewhere else who are not yet infected and are still capable of producing males, but it doesn't really take foresight. All it takes is some sort of mutation that results in the death of one, the death of the males, for example, and that mutation doesn't get selected against. If anything, it might get selected for Hmm. because it's now overrepresented in the next generation Hmm. rather than a strain that didn't kill off the males. And now it's sort of divided between some males and some females, but probably fewer females because its output was kind of divided between these two sexes. Mm. Anyway, that's one one kind of uh, reproductive parasitism. All right, so um, that's killing the males. What else? Male, another example of reproductive parasitism is this thing called cytoplasmic incompatibility. So this is a little bit different from male killing. The males are not actually killed. Instead, a female who infected will lay eggs of both male and female progeny that will grow up to be adult male and females. And then those sons who are infected, they are making sperm that is incompatible with uninfected females. Hmm. So if those infected males mate with an uninfected female, those sperm will actually destroy the eggs of those females with whom they're mating and they will not be viable. So what it, mm. what does that do to the spread of this infection in the next generation? Well, so you're killing off ones that are not infected. Uh-huh. And so yeah, exactly. basically everybody will eventually get infected. Exactly. Any survivors would be infected. Yeah. Exactly, because when the infected males mate with the same strain of infected females, everything is just totally fine, hunky dory. Yeah. So that that's kind of a cool sort mm. of the turning the males into these little I don't know, little assassins <laughs> of the, the female eggs who have yet to be infected. Hmm. So that one will become important when we uh, start applying this to mosquito control here in a little bit. Okay. There's another interesting case where it can actually result in the production of parthenogenic females. So okay. parthenogenesis, it just basically means the ability of a female to produce eggs that grow up to be viable adults without ever having mated with a male. And so it's a form of asexual reproduction. Mm. It's not the same thing as what we think of how bacteria sort of duplicate their genome and then divide in half and then boop, you've got two bacteria now. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, a female animal multicellular animal, her gonads are still producing eggs. It's just that those eggs do not need to be fertilized by a male. Hmm. So that's that's three of them then. So you're saying Uh that it either just kills the males outright, Uh turns males into assassins 
of the non-infected uh-huh. or it, it makes the women just not need males at all. Uh-huh. Okay. So that sounds like the Amazon solution right there. Uh-huh. And so you said, but there's a fourth one you said. That's, that one? Yeah. There's one more interesting one, which is the feminization of genetically male individuals as in you know we're familiar with what we think of as like an xx versus xy in broad general terms for uh, humans sex determination and yeah in in a lot of vertebrates and there's similar things in place in uh, insects as well where there's a genetic component to sex determination and in this particular case an egg that has the genetic components that it would normally develop into producing an adult male however the wolbachia changes the blend of hormones in the developing larva to mimic that of a female Hmm. and these cells don't quote unquote know which genome they have they're just responding to the hormones that are present and behaving accordingly and so that's what's meant by feminizing the genetic males is even though genetically they would grow up to be males it actually puts them on a female developmental trajectory and they grow up to be females Hmm. and again females are the sex that perpetuates a Wolbachian infection from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Right. So you're saying that the bacteria itself is producing these hormones? I'm not real clear on whether it's the bacteria itself that's producing the hormones or if it's the bacteria that is manipulating the cell Mm. to produce those hormones in some way. My guess would be it's the latter, Yeah, but I'm not 100% sure on that. All right. So now we have our four. We have the silent assassins killing (laughs) all the non-infected eggs. We have the ones that just kill the males off entirely. Mm-hmm. We have ones in which they induce the female to just give birth without needing to mate at all. Mm-hmm. The Amazon one. And then we have this one where we're turning all the males into females as well. Right. Okay. And uh, back to the mosquitoes, which kind of was the first, I guess, the rabbit running down the hole that I chased here. Oh, nice. I brought us all back <laughs> full circle. Yeah. I, I didn't know if we would actually get there or not, but Okay. <laughs> This is a situation where understanding something about the different kinds of reproductive parasitisms that Wolbachia can cause in their host comes into play. And so it turns out that for certain kinds of mosquitoes, and the one that I will talk about here is called Aedes aegypti. It's an Egyptian mosquito. It's native to Africa. It's been transported all around the world. It's actually an important disease vector of a lot of different diseases like dengue and Zika virus and a few others. And so it's a problem, right, for human health. And turns out that this particular mosquito doesn't naturally have a infection of Wolbachia. It's like one of the relatively smaller percentage of insect species that don't naturally have Wolbachia in them. Mm -hmm. However, What you can do is bring them into the lab and inject them with Wolbachia and those Wolbachia will take up residence in their gonads and the mosquitoes will be able to tolerate the infection and will then subsequently start producing offspring that are infected with Wolbachia. So this is sort of like we've talked in previous episodes about how it is that a disease causing organism can jump from one host to another host, right? Like when we've had a few episodes on COVID now, where we talked about how it 
coronavirus is present in lots of other kinds of animals, and it's fairly common that it might move from one kind of vertebrate to another kind of vertebrate. This is a very similar kind of principle. And so what's at play here then is it sets up a situation where the males are producing sperm that have cytoplasmic incompatibility with the eggs of all of the females in their population. So this is the assassin males. Yeah, the assassin okay. sperm. That's okay. right. And so what ninja some sperm. Bi- <laughs> Sorry. Ninja sperm. <laughs> so what some various entities around the world have been researching and have started doing is they have a lab reared population of these Egyptian mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. And they apply Wolbachia to the eggs. And then once those eggs hatch out, they segregate all of the males from the females. The females, they either toss in the freezer or they can use them to maintain a breeding stock of their infected mosquitoes. But the males, they take and release live male mosquitoes into a location where they want to try to control the mosquito population. Okay. Right. So a couple of Oh, and these here. are the infected ones. So they're going to kill off a bunch of females. Exactly. So they're uh... releasing infected males, right? So the first thing to realize is that male mosquitoes do not bite. They don't okay. take a blood meal, right? So they're not going to be annoying or spreading disease or anything like that. And the second thing, as you just said, those males are going to start mating with the females in that population and every time they do, that female is going to go and lay a bunch of non-viable eggs. Uh, okay. And so it's already been shown in places where this has been tried to greatly reduce the abundance of these mosquitoes in a local environment. Oh, I see. So th- I-, I must have missed the part where you said that they, they collect all the females, the infected females, they collect all those and keep them segregated. And they don't release them. So the females with this infection are not released. So they're not spreading that on anywhere. Only the males are let out. Mm -hmm. And so that can cut down on the population pretty effectively. Right, right. Because the females that they will be mating with will not be infected, Hmm. which means that those sperm and egg have cytoplasmic incompatibility. And so all of the eggs that that female lays as a result of that mating are not going to be viable. Hmm. And so the more males you release, the larger you increase the um, percent of uh, matings that the females will have with Mm -hmm. the Wolbachia infected males. And then if you do start getting infected females, which you will eventually, those infected females are going to be laying Wolbachia infected offspring. And another benefit of Wolbachia infection is that it actually reduces, well, it does a couple of things. It reduces the lifespan of the mosquitoes, apparently. Okay. All right. And so any individual mosquito will have a shorter lifespan, a shorter time during which it might be transmitting diseases like dengue or Zika virus. And also another thing that that shorter lifespan does is it lowers the viral load in the mosquito. So mosquitoes that are infected with Wolbachia tend to have a lower viral load of things like dengue and Zika. 
in areas where those diseases are prevalent. So two female mosquitoes that are equal in other ways, except one is infected with Wolbachia, that one's going to have a much lower dengue or Zika or whatever the disease is prevalence Hmm. than the mosquito that does not have a Wolbachia infection. And so there might be something about the Wolbachia does something that reduces the ability of those disease causing viruses to multiply inside the mosquito to the same degree. So there's actually a couple of really interesting things going on there, right? So there's like the population level thing of reducing viable numbers of offspring. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the sort of physiological thing happening inside the mosquitoes that reduces the viral load. Hmm. And so in tropical places around the world, like I read a study from Indonesia, another one from uh, Northern Australia, places where this has been put into practice in Mm -hmm. a trial basis have been very, very successful, very large reductions in mosquito abundance, very large reductions in the prevalence of some of these diseases that I was just talking about. Hmm. So that sounds very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Can that eventually, I would assume that would, will eventually backfire though. Right. I would assume that (laughs) there's eventually going to be some female who doesn't care will be resistant to that cytoplasma. Yeah, I don't know. I think this cytoplasmic incompatibility thing is a pretty big hurdle to get over because my understanding is that a lot of these things that result in like the male killing or the cytoplasmic incompatibility are the mechanism has something to do with really screwing up some key stages in cell division like in mitosis, for example. Okay. And I mean, it's probably not impossible, but that's a pretty significant problem Hmm. or error to imagine fixing very easily. Mm -hmm. So it will never drive the population of mosquitoes to zero, but it can certainly make a huge difference in uh, the number of mosquitoes and the prevalence of some of these diseases though. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I I think it's interesting to just think about how understanding parasitic interactions of this tiny, tiny little unassuming bacteria and how the nature of the different kinds of interactions it has with its hosts, Mm -hmm. it's just interesting to know about, but it also has these implications for pest kind of arthropods that we encounter in our lives Yeah, and how we can harness that in a way that's useful and and I think also fairly environmentally friendly. Hmm, Interesting. Well, thanks, Chad. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way, you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have questions that you would like us to tackle, email us at crisscrossingsci@gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.